We're going to finish our series this morning on spectacular sons born to save the world. If you could turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Our focus verse is going to be verse 6, but we'll go ahead and read starting in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 9, as we're about to hear these words, remember that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 9, verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought to contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. As with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, when when those Greeks came to Philip and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Lord, we would say the same thing this morning, not just with our physical eyes on the paper, not just with our ears as the word is being preached, but Lord, we would see this son that was given to us in our hearts, that it would penetrate to the deepest recesses of who we are, that we might rejoice as the angels did on that day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, you may be seated. So we began Advent by pointing to Genesis 3.15, where God had promised that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. A a son was to be born that would slay the dragon. And and thus far, this spectacular son has been foreshadowed by other sons. We've looked at Isaac and Moses and Solomon. But none of those sons could actually save the world. 
In our passage this morning, Isaiah promises the final son. And this promise was given at a time that was far darker, far darker than the age that we live in right now. Sometime around the 7th century BC, Isaiah prophesied these words. At the time, Israel had already been taken into uh, Assyrian captivity. They had turned away from the Lord by worshiping other gods, 2 Kings 17.7. Imagine that the very nation that God delivered out of Egyptian bondage had now turned back to paganism. And Judah was no better off. When this prophecy was given, King Ahaz of Judah had already adopted demonic practices in the kingdom, and he sacrificed his son in the fire to Molech, 2 Kings 16.3. This is why I'm saying this world of this time is darker than ours. Can you imagine a sitting president offering up his son to the fire? The one nation on earth that was to be the light to the nations had become Sodom and Gomorrah, for, uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. God says this of them in chapter 1, verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. And it looked as if the dragon was going to swallow up the last Remnant. And in the midst of this darkness, God promises several spectacular things here in Isaiah 9. In verse 1, he promises that Israel would be brought out of her gloom and anguish. In verse 2, the Gentiles that were in darkness would see a great light. In verse 3, the city of God would greatly multiply and joy and gladness would abound in a great harvest. In verse 4, slavery and oppression would be broken. In verse 5, war would end and universal peace would prevail. How would all of these things come to pass? Because, verse 6, to us a child is born and to us a son is given. The final son would usher all of this in. This true, spectacular son born to save the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's consider together this son under six different descriptions. You'll see this in your notes that Jesus Christ is the spectacular son. That he is the universal king the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So let's begin then with the spectacular son. Look at verse 6. This phrase seems to just be a repetition, but it's actually saying two important things. The first clause in verse 6 says, for to us a child is born. This child was to be born. A woman was to give birth to him. Angels are not born. Men are born. Jesus Christ was born. What does that mean? What means, first of all, is that he was true man of true man. He had a human body and he had a human soul. 
Furthermore, this means that as a man, Jesus had to learn things. Luke 2.52 says that he increased in wisdom. Hebrews 5.8 says that he learned obedience. As a man, Jesus became hungry, Matthew 4.2. Thirsty, John 19.28. He became tired, John 4.6. In other words, this child that was born into the world was exactly like us, except for sin. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus Christ is true man of true man. He is no less or no more than any man in this room as a man. However, he is so much more. And this is the second clause. To us... A son is given. His birth was not an ordinary birth. Flip back just a couple pages, chapter 7, verse 14. We read, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What is the Lord going to give? Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This son was given by the Lord to a virgin. A virgin, without the help of a man, was given a son. A virgin would give birth. And this is what was promised in Genesis 3.15. Remember, it was the woman that would have an offspring, Jesus cannot be said to be the offspring of any man. He did not have an earthly father. He was given to us from above. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. This is what the angel told Mary in Luke one thirty five: The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. And I don't know what some of your backgrounds are, but lest you think that that phrase, Son of God, somehow means something less than God, look again at Isaiah 7.14. What is he called there? What's his name? Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. He's both the Son of God and he's eternal God himself. He's no less Jehovah than the Father. All the attributes of God. He has all the glory of God. Jesus, this Son, was given, and He is true God of true God. And so that brings us then to our, our first and most important principle. Jesus Christ is both true man and true God. He is the child born, truly human. He is the Son given, truly God. I think some of us who have been Christians for a long period of time fail to see how vital this doctrine is. All of our salvation hangs on this one truth. So let's take a a quick five-minute crash course in seminary, okay? There have been several heresies um, regarding the person of Christ over the last 2,000 years. 
in the first century, there was a heresy called docetism. Docetism. Docetism taught that Jesus was truly divine, but not human. He only had the appearance of a human. He just looked like a human, but he really wasn't. In the second century, there was a heresy called Abianism. Abianism. Abianism taught the opposite, that Jesus was truly human, but not divine. He wasn't preexistent. He was only adopted as God's son at his baptism when the Spirit of God came upon him. In the fourth century, there's a heresy called Arianism. Arianism taught that Jesus was the first and highest creation of God, but not equal to God himself. Later in the fourth century, I actually think that some of you might hold to this next one. Um, Later in the fourth century, there was a heresy called Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism taught that Jesus had a human body, but not a human soul or a human spirit. So the divine logos basically took the place of Jesus' human spirit. Jesus was only half human. It was like God in a human shell. Talk to some of you. I know. In the 5th century, there was a heresy called Nestorianism. Nestorianism taught that there was no true union between the divine nature and the human nature. So when Christ died, it was completely an act of the human nature and had nothing to do with the divine nature. And then later in the 5th century, there was a heresy called Eutychianism. Eutychianism. Eutychianism taught that the union of the divine and human nature produced a hybrid nature. So you know how um, in Greek mythology there are centaurs that are half horse and half man. That's what Eutychianism taught, that Jesus was neither truly human nor truly God. He was like a third thing, a hybrid. So what, right? Why does all this matter? Why has the Christian church fought tooth and nail over these very things? Because all salvation depends upon this one thing. Jesus had to be truly God and truly man. Listen, if Christ were not truly man, if he didn't have a true human body and a true human soul, then we could not be redeemed. He had to be a true human sacrifice in order to be a substitute in our place. That's what Hebrews 2.17 says. Do you notice that fallen angels are not redeemed? Why? Because Christ didn't take on the nature of an angel. He took on the nature of men. And secondly, if Christ were not truly God, then his death would not have satisfied the infinite wrath of God. Only an infinite price can satisfy an infinite death. And that's why the divine nature had to be connected to the human nature um, morally and organically in every way to hold up, to make that price worth what our sin deserves. Dear congregation, Christ is unlike any other son ever born in the world. 
To us, a child is born means he's true man of true man. To us, a son is given means he is true God of true God. That's our first point, that Jesus Christ is the spectacular son, the son of Mary and the son of God. Let's look at our second description, the universal king. Let's look at the next clause in verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. That phrase, upon his shoulder, means that he'll carry the weight of the government on his shoulder. Or it's the idea of a robe of office, that Jesus shall wear the robe, indicating that he holds the office, that he rules or has dominion over the government. Which government? There's self-government, there's... Church government, there's civil government, there's that civil government, there's this civil government. Which government? Well, the government that God promised David. Halfway through verse 7, we see that this son is enthroned on the throne of David and over his kingdom. But make no mistake, this government wasn't limited to just the boundaries of Israel. Uh, The promise here is that Jesus would be the universal king. The government of the whole world would be upon his shoulders. That brings us to our second principle. This spectacular son is king of heaven and earth. This spectacular son is king of heaven and earth. And you might think, uh, and this is where we're not careful in in our Trinitarian thinking versus our hypostatic union thinking. Big words there. Um, you might think, well, that's not really a big deal. God the Son has always been king. But our passage is actually telling us more than that. It's telling us that Jesus Christ, as the God-man, as the mediator, is going to be king. And that has never happened before, prior to him coming into the world. Listen, when sin entered the world, Adam fell from his position of rule and Satan was given authority over the nations. That's precisely what Luke 4, 6 says. He's called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. But when Jesus came into the world, what did the Magi ask? Matthew 2, 2. Where is he who has been born king? That's that's one reason why we see so much demonic activity happening in the gospel accounts. The king arrives, and it's like the light turns on, and all the cockroaches are scurrying for cover. And Jesus said mind-blowing things when he was in his ministry. In Luke 10, 18, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And when he was about to go to the cross in John 12, 31, he says, now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. You see, when Jesus came, the kingdom of the God-man began to replace the kingdom of Satan. Jesus took the kingdom of the world away from Satan, Psalm 2, 6, and 8, and now the world rests on his shoulders. That's the reason why Jesus can put the world to rights in verses 1 through 5, because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And look at how the government is going to increase. Verse 7, 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. What does increase mean? It means to grow. It means to become more. It means to advance. Well, when did that start to happen? Do we have to wait for some future time for his government to increase? No, not at all. The end of verse 7 says that this increase began from this time forth and forevermore. Meaning that at Jesus' birth, when the kingdom came, it has been increasing ever since. It began as a small mustard seed, Matthew 13, 31, and it's been steadily growing and advancing now for 2,000 years. I actually think that we as evangelicals don't interpret this passage very carefully. This, this word increase actually means something. I was listening to a Christian at one point comment on this passage, and he said that, well, what we have to understand is Satan's kingdom and Christ's kingdom, they're increasing at the same rate. Well, children, boys and girls, let's put our math hats on for just a second, okay? If, Jesus, if Satan had 100% authority over the kingdoms of the world before Jesus came, and then Jesus was born, and he received 1% of the authority, how much authority would Satan have left? 99%. Very good. See, addition and subtraction, that works, right? So as Jesus' kingdom continues to increase, as it goes to 10%, to 20%, what's happening in Satan's kingdom? It's getting smaller and smaller, okay? Um, our passage says that when Jesus was born into the world, that the kingdom of the world became his, and it's been increasing ever since. Someone might say at this point, then why does the world look the way it does? Jesus' government can't be increasing right now. Look how bad the world is. First of all, I wish you could get into, you know, Michael J. Fox's time machine and go back, you know, several thousand years and see how bad it was. And you might say something differently. But let's take the objection seriously. The objection goes too far. What if someone, think about your own life, loved ones. What if someone were to say to you, oh, look at that Christian. Jesus can't be ruling over him. Look how much sin still remains. Could someone say that about you? Sanctification is slow. Likewise, the increase of Jesus' government is slow and gradual. It's like a mustard seed, the scripture says. It's like leaven leavening the lump, the scripture says. Our impatience with the process is no argument against the increase of his government. When this spectacular son was born, Isaiah says, the government was put on his shoulders and has been increasing ever since. And that's our second point, that Christ, the God-man, is king over heaven and earth. Our third description, the wonderful counselor. Another reason Jesus can put the world to rights, as promised in verses 1 through 5, is because, halfway through verse 6, his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. Jesus is our wonderful, our marvelous, our astonishing, our incomparable counselor, our teacher, 
our advisor. Great kings like King David had counselors like Ahithophel. And it says in 2 Samuel 16, 23, that in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God, so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed. But when this king was born, he needed no counselor. Romans 11.34 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Jesus Christ is the counselor of counselors. But it's not just his intellect that we're supposed to admire here. What do counselors do? They counsel. (laughs) They advise. They teach. They instruct. They bring light out of darkness. That's what Jesus came to do. Who did Jesus come to counsel? Sinners, like you and me. Sin has corrupted the knowledge of God for every human being. Sin makes us ignorant of the ways of God. That's where we get the language that I was lost, I was blind. Why were you lost? Because I didn't know who God was. Why were you blind? Because I didn't know who God was. Psalm 14, 2 and 3, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. No, they have all turned aside. Jeremiah 10, 14, Every man is stupid and without knowledge. But when Christ... Our wonderful counselor came into the world. He taught us how to get back to God. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's our third principle, that only this spectacular son can teach us how to get back to God. Don't you... Realize that that's the chief blessing of, of Jesus being our counselor, that he, he leads us back to God by his teaching, by his instruction, by his gospel. His, even his enemies said this about him, that no man has ever spoken like him, John seven forty six. Philip said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And the apostle Peter himself declared that there was no other teacher, no other rabbi, no other guru who could counsel men in what they most needed to hear. What did he say? He said, Lord, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. So dear congregation, wherever you are in life right now, whatever your age whatever your sex, whatever your occupation, we have to examine ourselves. Ask yourself, is Jesus your counselor? Are you being counseled by him? Are you seeking after his will in the scriptures? Is Jesus' word the final word in your life, or is there some other word that is more trustworthy than his? If you say that Jesus is your wonderful counselor, do you regularly go to his word to to hear what he has to say? Take stock of 
take stock of your life. I know that for myself, whenever I have turned away from the wonderful counsel of Jesus, it has been the darkest and most sinful and most painful parts of my life. If that's where you are, then return to him. Seek after his counsel. Sit at his feet and and receive his teaching. Be transformed by his words of life. Receive the milk of the word as he nourishes you. He's our wonderful counselor. That's our third point, that only this spectacular son can teach us how to get back to God. Fourthly, Jesus is the mighty God. Another reason why Jesus can put the worlds to right in verses 1 through 5 is because he is the mighty God. And this is, again, another proof for his divinity. But why is it so important to say that he is the mighty God? Certainly, we we know that generally speaking, he's omnipotent. The, The wind and the waves obey him that he hangs the earth on nothing. Uh, He controls the heart of all kings. But it's not his general omnipotence that Isaiah is drawing our attention here to. Remember, what does verse 6 say? He was given to us. He was born for us. His might, his power is for us. It's for his redemptive purposes. As we've seen in our trek through Exodus, God told the Israelites in Exodus 14, 14, that the Lord will fight for you. That's what this might is about. It's about God fighting for us. That brings us to our fourth principle. Only this spectacular son can defeat all our enemies. Only this spectacular son can defeat all of our enemies. Children, boys and girls... As you get older, you realize that you're not the greatest thing since sliced bread, and people start to not like you, and you start to gather enemies. But the truth is, is that you already had the greatest enemies from birth, at the moment of birth. You had Satan seeking to devour your soul. You had death knocking on your door. You had the seed of the serpent seeking to devour you. You were born with vicious enemies, and if God were to leave you to yourself, you would be ruined and wretched for all eternity. But dear congregation, consider how Christ, the mighty God, was sent to defeat these very enemies. This mighty God came to defeat the wicked kingdoms of the world. Revelation 19, 11, and 15, the one sitting on the white horse is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. This mighty God came to defeat the devil. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This mighty God came to defeat death itself. This is Paul's crescendo in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God, we have been given the victory through Jesus Christ. Yeah. 
One of Dr. Seuss's um, most beloved stories is how the Grinch stole Christmas. Whoville nearly lost out on Christmas, but at the last minute, the Grinch became a converted citizen of that magical kingdom and all ended well. Now, the thing about myths and stories is they often tell true things, don't they? The dragon has been trying to steal Christmas from the very beginning. Listen to how Revelation puts it. Revelation 12, 13, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. That's not just a description of some future time. That's a description of all of redemptive history. Just consider the dragon almost stole Christmas when the Nephilim spread wickedness all over the earth, Genesis 6, 5. But what did the mighty God do? Send a flood. The dragon almost stole Christmas by having Pharaoh kill all of those Hebrew baby boys in Exodus 12, uh, 1, 22. But what did the mighty God do? He sent Moses. The dragon almost stole Christmas by having Queen Athaliah slay all of David's descendants, 2 Kings 11.1. But the mighty God took this little boy named Joash and hid him with a maidservant. The dragon almost stole Christmas by having Haman decree that every Jew in the world would be killed, Esther 3.8-15. But the mighty God had that wicked man hung on his own gallows. The dragon almost stole Christmas by having King Herod kill all the male children in Bethlehem, Matthew 2.16. But the mighty God took his Jesus away. Dear congregation, it's this mighty God who fights for us in the person of Christ. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. That's our fourth point that only this spectacular son can defeat all our greatest enemies. Fifthly, the everlasting father. Another reason Jesus can put the world to rights as promised in verses one through five is because he is the everlasting father. And right at this point, we're kind of at a little bit of a quandary, aren't we? I thought we were talking about the son, why are we talking about the Father now? Well, there are two more heresies that would explain this by saying that, well, the Son is the Father and the Father is the Son. This is the heresy of oneness theology uh, or the heresy of modalism. They, they both teach that there are not three distinct persons in the Trinity, but rather one divine person who manifests himself in different modes, sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Son, sometimes as the Spirit. So he goes behind the curtain, puts on a different mask, and comes out. But this is 100% unbiblical. Christ is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. The Orthodox Faith teaches us that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. Well, how do we explain this then? 
Well, Jesus is called the everlasting father figuratively. Figuratively. What do fathers beget? Life. They give life. Fathers are life givers. Jesus is called the everlasting father because he's the source of everlasting life. That brings us to our fifth principle. Only this spectacular son is the source of eternal life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John, First John 5.11 and 12, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so what must we do here? We must believe in the Son. He alone is the source of life. So if you're here this morning, my question is, is have you believed in this spectacular son? And perhaps you don't know what that means. I, well, I don't really know what that means. Is it, does it mean like believing in George Washington? What does it mean to believe in the son? What does it mean to have saving faith? Well, to believe in the son means that we receive him, we receive him as he offers himself, in the way that he offers himself. Shorter Catechism 86 says, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Answer, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. So, dear friend, Jesus offers himself to you as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king as a prophet to teach you, as a priest to redeem you, and as a king to rule and defend you. Receive and rest in him. That's saving faith. Accepting him as he offers himself to us. So that's our fifth point. Only this spectacular son is the source of eternal life. Finally, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The last reason Jesus can put the world to rights in verses one through five is because he's the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Shalom. Shalom is completeness. It's soundness. It's welfare. It's safety. It's prosperity, it's health, it's tranquility, it's contentment, it's friendship, it's um, peace from all strife and all affliction and all sorrow and all death and all pain and all evil. Shalom is the most blessed and happy word in the Bible. Jesus is called the Prince of Shalom because he is the highest and the best and the greatest and the most supreme and the longest lasting and the most soul-satisfying peace that we need. That brings us to our last principle that only this spectacular son can give a peace that passes all understanding. What is the human condition? What is something that we have in common with every single 
being on the planet, whether you're Chinese or Russian or American, boy or girl, what do we have all in common? We feel guilty. We sometimes we wake up feeling guilty. Sometimes we go to bed feeling guilty. Sometimes we feel guilty and we don't even know why. Sometimes we are pursuing a particular evil course and we know that we feel guilty because of that. We're guilty because we're sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we feel this guilt in our bones. And every part of our existence manifests our guilt. You know the wrinkles you have on your face. Why are you dying? Human beings weren't made to die. We have wrinkles on our face. We have aging bodies. We have gray hairs. We get sick. We feel depressed at times. And we eventually die. Why? Because the human race is guilty. And the good news is that we have a son of shalom. A child has been given to us. A son has been born. Jesus, the great Prince of Peace came to give us peace. He came to give us a gift that no one else in the world can give us. Listen, we're all going to go home and we're going to open presents underneath the tree. And some of those presents are going to be so great. Some of them are going to be meaningful. Some of them are going to be just a joy, but none of them. You won't find one gift under that tree that has shalom in it. Only Jesus can give that gift. Consider the comfort that this peace that Jesus gives us is. First of all, Jesus gives us a peace with ourself. For any of you who've had a guilty conscience like mine, you know that a guilty conscience is like a worm that devours the soul. It's always gnawing. It's always eating. It's always moving. It's never stopping. It's always plaguing. But the son of Shalom can lift any burden of guilt. Oh, children, remember when Christian was traveling to the celestial city and he had the big burden on his back? What happened when Christ lifted the burden? He he leapt for joy. He sang hallelujahs. He said, praise to the king. My guilt is gone. The son of Shalom can give us peace within ourselves that nothing else can give. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, Jesus said. Secondly, Jesus gives us a peace with others. You realize that Christians, only Christians can have peace in their homes. Every natural born man is born selfish and self-centered and self-seeking and self-concerned. No one outside of Christ can truly have peace with another human being. But when Christ raises the soul from death and from sin, everything changes. Ephesians 2, 14 and 16 says, He himself is our peace. He reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The reason why Christians can have peace is because they're brought into the same body of Christ. He himself is our peace. Thirdly, and most vitally, 
Jesus gives us peace with God. Who cares if you have peace within yourself and you have peace with others if you don't have peace with God? This is the greatest peace. Outside of the Prince of Peace, man is under the terrible wrath of God. But when Christ, this spectacular son, was given, was born into the world, when he comes into union with the soul of man by faith alone, all wrath vanishes. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Prince of Peace gives us. That's what the Son of Shalom gives us. Peace with ourselves, peace with others, and peace with God. Oh, celebrate this Son, this Christmas loved one. As you're opening your presence, remember that Christ has given you a son that's worth more than 10,000 worlds. You've been given a spectacular son. This is how God will put the, the world to rights. He is our wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. He is our everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. To us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given. Let's pray. Father, we know that all of our worship and all of our words and all of our singing falls infinitely short of the worth of your Son. Lord, we know that when we die, when the angels bring us to that celestial city and we see the Savior face to face, we will wonder with dumbfoundedness, how we did not praise you more. We'll be astonished that our affections were so cold. God, that you gave us the God-man and that Jesus, you humbled yourself that you were born in a manger amongst the smell and stink of animals. You were the king of kings and you became the servant of servants. And you lived the life that we, des- that we needed to live, and you died the death that we deserved to die. You were born to perish for our sins. And so we praise you, and we thank you, and we celebrate you this Christmas Eve. May you receive all the glory and honor and power and might for this- from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.